Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together and hear your word. Lord, your word is alive and it's well, and we thank you that it will transform us if we let it. So I pray that as we hear, our hearts will be open. Lord, our minds will be attentive to what you want to say. Lord, so speak to the hearts here. Lord, let our words be your words. We thank you that we can come together and hear from the Almighty God. Amen. Hello, hello, there we go. I'm, one of my faults is I'm overly honest when I probably shouldn't talk. And so today, yesterday I was like scared to move my arms because the lights are bright and I'm kind of nervous. So today I wear nice and airy stuff, stuff that won't show how nervous I am. <laughs> so my, I'll be moving more today than I was yesterday. I was kind of like, oh yeah, not moving around too much. But there is part of my brutally honest, embarrassing myself moments so <laughs> but I was telling me if you say it first then people can't comment on it so there we go I was nervous and sweaty last night <laughs> we're good this morning so good morning nice to see you and like Jeremy said I just want to thank you for I know that the majority of people in here prayed and interceded on our behalf and I always cry and I probably will just as a warning <laughs> so thank you we feel like a part of this a great family. Look, I didn't even make it like two minutes in. Okay, I can do this. Okay, let's turn to John. The pastors, the series they've been working through is Jesus is the light, and they've been working through John for the, through the, ugh, through a few first chapters of John. And so today we are going to land in the wedding at Canaan and John 2. And it's on. There we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. I forgot the clicker. Thank you. Last night I had him doing it. Oh, my, my foot fell on my shoe. He's like, Just take the clicker today. I have the clicker. So, yes, I'm not usually quite, this is like my nervous, I like ramble more when I'm nervous, but it'd be good. You only have to listen to me one day, so we're good. (laughs) So we are, yeah, clapping, thank you. (laughs) Is that good or bad? I don't know. So, as a wedding, I'll pull myself back in here, a wedding, every girl starts dreaming about that wedding. When they're little kids, they're playing wedding. When they have it planned, they have the bridal magazines. Now it might just be more internet stuff. They know what dress they want, and they know who the bridesmaids are going to be. They've got it all figured out. We're almost sometimes the guys, the accessory at the end, right? Like, and okay, you can come type of a thing, right? It's just this dream that girls have. The size of our weddings represent our family circles, our Families, family circles, our parents, family circle, relatives, friends. Like, it, it's big. They're grand. I don't think I have this on a slide. But so the average wedding cost in the United States for 2017 was $25,764. Blows my mind. In 2013, in the United States, the wedding industry was estimated to be worth $53.4 billion. And in Canada, the yearly revenue is estimated to be $4 billion. 
just, it's crazy. Uh, but it's this time where people get together. The year Evie was born, my brother got married, and my cousin got married in Calgary. And so I saw relatives and family I hadn't seen in years, because everybody comes out for the weddings. Ike, Jeremy said, so Jeremy is from the States. He's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We met in Portland, Oregon at Bible school, and then I dragged him back to Saskatchewan, because I grew up there, born and raised in Saskatchewan. I can tend to be kind of frugal and cheap. I like to say frugal because it doesn't sound as bad as cheap. But our wedding, so we got married in 2007, and our wedding cost $2,500, which included my dress. Yeah, thank you. I was pretty proud of myself. My parents gave me $2,000, and I'm like, I am like, I'm not spending a bunch of my money then. So, again, I'm frugal. <laughs> so, but we did it, and part of the reason we were able to do it is we were in a community, a small community, and some of the people's gifts to us were progies and cabbage rolls, and so we didn't, yeah, part of our food for our wedding was given to us. My dad was like, I'll do roast, so he went and changed and cut up roast on our wedding day. We tried to talk him out of it, but my dad makes his mind, he's doing it. And so it was, it was a time of celebration. But then there was like these nerves, because I'm like, ugh. Jeremy was part of a wedding in that summer, and his friend got married in the States, and it was a big, elaborate wedding. And his family, his, the, Jeremy's friend's parents came up to her wedding, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, part of my, de- my decorations were some candle holders that we got at a grad sale. We put coffee beans in them with a tea light, and then we picked leaves that had fallen off the tree because we got married in October, so there's pretty leaves on the ground. And then my mom, I'm going to throw her under the bus, she's here visiting this weekend. And she would drive back from work, and she would stop and pick ditchweed. And we used ditchweed. We had an old barn door on the stage. Like, it was beautiful, but the decorations maybe cost like $50 for everything. So, so this family's coming, and we have a buffet line. You weren't being served your food. We even got up and got our own food. We weren't served. The youth were the ones cleaning up all the stuff that wasn't styrofoam and paper. And, uh, and Jeremy's friend's mom looks at someone in our church, and she's like, do they normally serve pickles at weddings? <laughs> Jeremy had been telling me, that. I'm like, people have weddings and don't have pickles? Like, my mind was blowing. So yeah, it's just different, right? But in Jewish customs, this, this was huge, especially for the poor. It was their grand event, it was their big moment. It says that they were sometimes treated as kings and queens and would even wear crowns. They prayed through, and it was a celebration. And it was a huge celebration, and people came, family came from all over the place. So the last thing you want to do is run out of food or drinks. And at that point, you kind of had wine and you had water. There wasn't, like, juice and all that kind of stuff. There wasn't a huge selection but in the in wine would represent joy it was it was a symbolic everything feels like it was so symbolic in that time so the fact that they're running out of of wine is this catastrophic disaster you can like it would be oh i have my clicker hold on although i don't know how to use it 
There. So to run out of wine would almost have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guests nor the bride and groom were happy. So to run out of wine is a big problem. So Mary is aware of this impending social disgrace. It would be terrible on the groom for them to run out of wine. And the groom has no idea that this is happening because he's caught up in the bliss of his wedding day. So then this interaction takes place. And so Jesus is invited. It says that he's invited into this wedding. So people are assuming theologians are in agreement that this is someone that Mary knows well. Because she is worried enough about the reputation. Jesus is invited to this wedding. So she sees these young men following him. She's heard what's happened with John the Baptist. Jesus has spent the 40 days in the wilderness. And I can't help but wonder if she is starting to put all this together. She knows who Jesus is. She, for 30 years, kept this huge secret. She was probably talked about. Right? She's this bride that is pregnant. She's had, I mean, it says Joseph wanted to, to defend and protect his reputation, her reputation. Like, so she's being talked about, but she can't tell them. She hasn't. She's held this secret of who her son is. So I'm wondering if she's thinking, it's here. This moment is finally here. Because she sees a need. The, the wedding is said to be, the wedding reflected what heaven or the arrival of the Messiah would be like. So her mind's thinking, what a better place than a wedding for Jesus to reveal who he is. So it's, she comes to Jesus out of place of concern and probably a little bit of excitement. And she turns to Jesus and said, they have no wine. When I read his response initially, I'm like, oh, man, that just sounds so mean. Or he's like, woman, why do you involve me? Jeremy called me woman. I don't know how I would respond. <laughs> because it just doesn't sound so nice. But he says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. I begin, I'm going to say I wonder again, because I don't really know another word to say <laughs> wonder, but... In Luke 2, I wonder if she begins to have this highlight reel. So in Luke 2, it says, Mary treasured up all these spectacular moments of Jesus' childhood, his birth, the moments that happen. And I want, they start flooding back in this moment where one day she's just minding her own business and an angel appears and tells her that she's going to have the Son of God. Where after she gives birth in a stable, some shepherds come running in saying, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Anything about that moment where they're coming back from Jerusalem for the Passover, and they're a day's journey back, it says, and Joseph and Mary start looking around. And they realize Jesus isn't there. Imagine the fear that goes, I lost the Son of God. I lost God's son, like, how do you recover from that? You can't, right? Like, maybe dad's, Malachi, or Jeremy forgot Malachi in the car one time, and forgot Zion in the car one time, but we never, we haven't lost a child yet. We've started with four, we still have four, so we're doing, we're doing good. Um, 
But so they're searching in Jerusalem for three days. And finally they go into the temple and they kind of start like, where have you been? Why did you do this, Jesus? And he's in there and he's talking with the priests. And, and they're amazed by the knowledge coming out of this child and the questions that are coming out of him. And Jesus looks at Mary and Joseph and he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So when Jesus says woman, it's not a point of rudeness or disrespect. It was actually very respectful. He, he says when he's dying on the cross to his disciples, he looks at them, he looks at Mary, and he calls her woman, and he calls Mary Magdalene woman. But in this moment, he's switching stuff. He is stepping out of the mother-son relationship and into the Messiah-disciple relationship. And Mary catches this. She doesn't miss it. He's saying who he is and who she is and who he takes his direction from. In John... Oh, there's... Forgot that was a slide. John 5, 19, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. I can of myself do nothing. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 5, 30. And then John 8, 28, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. So Jesus had to take a moment and ask his father what to do. Not Mary. So Mary has to put aside any preconceived ideas. She has to defer her will to his. So Mary doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She leaves it open for him to do what he feels he needs to be done. Some commentaries believe that Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, is referring to Mary perhaps wanting Jesus to show himself as the Messiah, where he establishes his proper role as king. So Jesus knows our hearts. He knew Mary's motives in that moment. We can just guess and assume and make educated guesses, I guess. Uh, But Jesus responds accordingly. And Mary then has to respond accordingly. She has to... It was not a rebuke, but it was a saying, I'm, things are changing. Things are changing. So she looks at the disciples and she says, or to the servants, and she says, do what he tells you. I'm sure we can all think of moments where we know how we want God to solve our problem. We know how we think, I'm waiting, I, when we moved... It made a lot more sense in my mind to have our house sold. It didn't make sense having to wait for so long, having to walk through that. But God knows. God knows, and we have to learn to say, God, here's my need. Here's kind of like how I would prefer you deal with it. But I trust you to do the best thing for me. We have to remember that he's on the throne and not us. And we need to come approach him in a place of humility, deferring our desires to his sacred will. We need to come before him humbly with our requests, trusting his heart towards us. I found a quote. It said, delays of mercy are not denials of prayers. 
So not many of Mary's words are recorded. But I feel like this one needs to be said. So if you need some good, godly, motherly advice right now, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. We need to trust his heart for us. He knows. He can see. He understands. He, he knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. Sometimes we need to step back, take ourselves off the throne, and reevaluate the situation and ask God to take his rightful place. I don't doubt that the majority of people in here have accepted Christ as, as their Savior. But sometimes we struggle letting him be Lord because then we have to submit our will and our desires to his. And that can be hard. So Mary says in this moment, do what he says. She probably wanted him maybe to vindicate her a little bit. Like, okay, this is your moment, Jesus. You do it. It's a wedding. This is perfect. You do your thing. But he's saying it's not time. It's not time for that yet. I will respond, and I will deal with the situation, and I will provide a miracle, but you have to trust me to do it the way I know needs to be done right now. He is the Messiah, and we are the disciples. I'll call Jeremy up as I finish. So it says, will we allow him to break the traditions and the rituals, which Jeremy is going to go into, and will we allow him to be the new best thing? Like Mary, we have heard the stories and the prophecies of who Jesus is. Will we allow him to be the Lord that we obediently and expectantly allow uh, submit our lives, our families, our friends, our hopes, our fears, and our plans to? And will we humbly say, I'll do whatever you say? Now that Mary has asked Jesus, what, like, there's no wine, like, can you do something? And Jesus responds, I will do what I seem fit. Now we get into the section of where something happens, where Jesus responds, where Jesus does something, where he sees fit. And so in John 2, 6 to 11, it says this, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's pretty big. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings up the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. These three chapters, two, three, and four, is all about Jesus doing this. It's all about Jesus saying the old is gone and the new has come. So Jesus says a lot of this, and we'll see a lot of this now as we read through it. It's like now there's a lot to show that the old religion is gone. He messes a lot with traditions. He's messing now with the old purification system. He's saying there's going to be a new purification system. 
And what happens here in John is called a sign. So it's a miracle, but within the miracle, there's actually something more to it. You know how sometimes you're in a relationship and you say something, and then your wife is trying to th- or husband is trying to think of what you actually said? right? Reading between the lines. This is what we're actually supposed to do here. We see that a miracle has happened, but we're actually supposed to look a little bit deeper and to see what is actually being said. Um, The miracle, a literal thing, literally happened. But now, what is the message within the message? So when we look at the details of what is happening, we're actually doing what the scripture says. We're not, we're just, yeah, we're running our fine-tooth comb through it, but we are diving deep into it to see the heart of it. And it starts with these six stones, uh, six stone water jars. And so I have a picture here. The oldest come, it's gone, the newest come. So these jars, they're huge. And you know, this picture actually doesn't do it justice. 20 to 30 gallons, probably like this big. And so there are these massive jars, huge. And so we can look at this many ways. We can be like, yeah, there's six jars, and the six is a number of incompleteness. Trying, but not there yet. God had taught Israel to live in a cycle of seven. So there's a little bit of, of looking into the details. Leviticus said that clay jars, which is most common in Israel, it can be infected with a religious impurity. They were deemed contamin- contaminated after ritual and were destroyed. And so these are stone jars. And what that means is stone couldn't get infected. And stone was expensive. It was rare. It was, so the religious stars being made of stone spoke to something that was very sacred. Some people would have stone baths in their home. This isn't a bath you bring your bubbles and your rubber ducky to, as I usually do when I take a bath. This bath was simply for cleansing. You walk into the bath, immerse yourself, you walk out of the bath. And people had these in their homes. The rich had these in their homes, not like our infinity pools now we have today. According to Jews' ceremonial law, people became symbolically unclean in life by touching objects of everyday life. Because at this time, the Jews believed in ritual impurity. So what this means was that if you touched another person and they hadn't cleansed themselves, now you were impure. If that person who was unclean sat on something, like a pew, then that pew was impure now. And then if that person, then another person came on set of that impure pew, pew, that's a little blah, 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 it's right in there, (laughs) impure pew, then that person was impure. You know what this sounds like to me? Cooties. (laughs) (laughs) this is because I have kids (laughs) people spiritual cuties is what it sounded like to me now these sacred stone jars they were very very important they were for ritual sake so the cuties would stop You are in a big ceremony, lots of people, so you need lots of holy water because you don't know where those people have been. You don't know if they've washed their hands. There wasn't Purell. And so they would go into these stone jars and they would stick their hands into these stone jars and make themselves now clean. These stone jars, they they were for bathing, purifying. They were not for drinking. 
These stone jars, they had been used already, right? They were, go up, fill up those stone jars again. They were empty or half full. Either way, they needed to be filled with water again. So the servants, they fill the water, the jars with water. They fill them to the brim. And then Jesus tells them to draw some, wa- some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now this water does not meet OH&S standards. The stones, the stones, they wouldn't have properly had the right temperature of water to be deemed clean in our culture. Not 200 degrees or whatever it is. I doubt any devout Jew would have considered drinking water from one of these pots. So why would Jesus use these pots? Why did he grab these pots? Why did he tell them to fill them up? I mean, there would have been empties around, right? Because they had wine already and they'd run out. So there was wine jars, wine bottles, wine kegs, wine skins. I don't know. There's, there's the wine, their olds are out there. Why not fill those up? Why use the stone jars? Why? Use a sacred icon of religious tradition. Why intentionally do something so potentially offensive? When Jesus used these jars as a tool in the miracle of turning water into wine, he is saying this, the old way of purification is no more. The actual cleansing of the sins is going to look different now. You will not need to constantly go to the jars. It will be a one-time cleansing of your sins through Jesus. No more ritual. It will be relationship. We get a picture of life before Christ. You imagine having to go to the jars all the time to clean yourself when you did something wrong, not knowing. You will not need to turn to ritual now. He's saying you will need to turn to Jesus. The ritual actually only makes the outside clean, but what Jesus is going to do is going to make the inside clean. He said, the day is over and there's a new day that has come. The new day is I've brought good wine. And we're in the Okanagan, we're like, yeah, wine. I've brought celebration and joy and rejoicing because I've cleansed you. I will make you new. I will wash away your stains. I will give to you my cleanliness and I will take from you your filthiness. Because as the perfect son of God, I cannot have a spot or blemish. Jesus, because he knows this is hard for us, throughout his ministry, he shows us to be true. And he oftentimes rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? He said, you are like a tomb. On the outside, you have flowers, but really, you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. Oof. It's like looking at a bowl you take out of your counter, right? And you're like, oh, I think this is going to be clean. Or you take it out of the dishwasher, the outside looks clean. And then you look at it and you're like, wow, there's still oatmeal on the inside of that bowl. Jesus is cleansing the outside and the inside. So it seems that Jesus wants to say that this will be what my hour will look like. I will take the purification rituals of Israel and replace them with a decisively new way of purification, namely with my blood. And keep in mind that in John 6, 55, Jesus said, my blood is true drink. Unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no life in you. Jesus is making his entrance like this. The first thing he is proclaiming is, no longer is ritualistic ceremonial cleanliness the path to God. 
The path to God is new wine, Jesus. The new Moses is here. Moses, the lawgiver who turned water into blood. God said there will be no one. There will be one to come again who is like Moses. There's another one coming. Jesus is saying, I am the better Moses. The one who fulfills the law and turns water into wine, which symbolizes, wine symbolizes blessing and joy. And so Moses freed you from slavery. Jesus said, I'm going to free you of your sins. I will be the judgment in my blood will be shed to cover all the sins that the law can never cover. There is a new way to purify. The old way is gone. The new is here. These ritual forms, they will not bring you life. I will bring you life. The fact that Jesus gave this gift of wine, not just good wine, not like just good wine, he gave the best wine, shows that he is the best gift to us. Not that cheap $4 bottle of wine that you might grab. We were talking about this earlier. Jesus is that best wine that's free, which is unheard of. Jesus has shown that he will be a gift of grace. Yeah, you don't deserve the best wine, but I'll give you the best. I will give it to you. The fact that all the stone jars will full to the brim is again not a coincidence. It says that you will only experience fullness of life with him. If you want the fullness of life, if you want the best, it's going to be with me. Having water to drink at a Super Bowl in this, or having water to drink at a wedding in this time was bland. It was like, what? Water at a wedding? It was an insult. It was like bringing a nice vegetable platter to a Super Bowl party. You don't do that. I'm American. I know how Super Bowl parties roll. You bring chips. You bring the best dips. It doesn't go together. Without Jesus, life is bland. With Jesus, life is rich, full of joy. Wine was a symbol of a joy. So when Mary said, there is no wine, what she was saying is, there is no joy. There is no joy. On their wedding day, the best day, the most exciting day, even on your best day, you will not experience the joy of life unless you have Jesus. John 2, 9 to 10 shows that the groom was finally, he was the final responsibility for the wine at his wedding, which means it was his shortcoming that let the wedding wine run out. It says in this verse, when the master of the feast, not the groom, but the head waiter, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, now you see who is really in charge of the wine, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And of course, he had no idea. He had no idea that the wine had run out. He's, he's like looking at the guy, the servant, and he's like, oh, okay, I guess I did a good job. <laughs> the groom did something unbelievable. He fell short. He couldn't provide. He couldn't provide, even on his best day, he couldn't provide. To run out of wine at a wedding would have brought much shame to the family and would have been a terrible way to start a marriage. No good. But unbeknown to him, Jesus delivers to the banquet unexpected. Comes unexpectedly. 
No matter who you are, no matter what wines you have tasted, there comes a time when the exhilarations and excitements of life wear out. It is superior to anything they have ever witnessed. The best wine lasts, it just doesn't make sense. He is better than everything, which is very true. Jesus is the best. And you know, we read this passage of scripture and we're like, the best wine. Yeah, Jesus is the best. He is the best. But what actually he's truly saying is this. We see Jesus came to save his bride, us. He came to deliver us from the shame of sin. He shows us that even though in the best moments of life, the happiness that we experience is matches to the joy that he brings. Yes, he is the best, but he came for us, the bride, to erase the shame of the sin that we experienced. And so what he's saying is he is here for us to come save us. He saved the groom on that day. Like he is coming for us again, his bride. The wine that Jesus gave was the best. Its timing in the, in the story is perfect. They experience the best that they could offer. They've experienced the best of the wedding. The groom has brought the best that he could do. They had the best gifts. They had the best food. food. They had the best wine. But Jesus shows what he offers so much greater. So the way Jesus manifested his glory at his wedding was that he showed himself to be the all-providing bridegroom for his bride. The great assembly of all those who trust in him. I'm going to call the worship team up as I close here. There's always an opportunity to respond to the message, to respond to what's being said. Maybe in your life, you know, we need to think back to when Mary says, Jesus, you do what you seem fit. Maybe there's some things you're holding on to your life where you're like, I can't give that to Jesus because I'm not sure how he's going to handle that situation. Mary simply trusted in him and said, you do what you seem fit. Maybe there's something you're holding on that you need to let go of. To say, Jesus, you take this. I trust you completely. I trust that you are the best. That you have the best in mind for me. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know Jesus. You don't know if you've never accepted him into your life. And what we see in this story is that he has come to save you. That the greatest joys that you might experience in your life right now pale in comparison to the joy of knowing Jesus. Maybe you're saying that statement, there is no joy. You know what there is? His name is Jesus. He is the best for you. And so as we close... Myself and Kim and the elders and any pastoral team will be up as we sing our last song. We want to pray for you. We invite you to come up, maybe to accept Christ into your life for the first time, or maybe simply just to let go and give it to God and say, I trust that you are in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the giver of life that you are the best. Lord, that you have come for us. You came at this wedding to say, I've come to save. We had fallen short. 
And we see that through all scripture. And now you're proclaiming, here I am. No more rituals, relationship. You can trust in me. You can let go. I have the best things in store for you. So as we close, Lord, we just invite those who just need, need prayer. And we thank you that your word is true. Amen.